You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. It's all good because I know ultimately you're applauding the Lord for the talents that, uh, that they've got and that they use and we're very appreciative of. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah 18. And while you're turning there, you know, there's times where we, um, we share prayer requests of, of things that we're in need of and things that we call out to God and petitions that we make. And, and then we, we kind of go on to the next time where we're alone in prayer with the Lord and then we move on to some more requests and then <clears throat> we move on to some more requests and we never, sometimes we don't take time to thank God for the prayers he's already answered. Well, sitting in this building this morning is a prayer that God has answered. And I mean, as tangibly and as clearly as he could answer, and he's sitting right down here on the front row. Paul Mansfield, if you would stand up, please. He didn't know I was doing this, but it's all good. I told him he was praying at the end, but I didn't tell him this part. By the way, Paul, sometimes I do stuff like this. It's, it's all good. But Paul and his family coming to Hyde Park is a fulfillment of a prayer that I started praying months ago, and um, very thankful to have him here. And please, take time to get to know him. If you weren't able to be here through some of the meets and greets, hey, he'll be around right here this morning. He officially starts today. Now, let me just caution a little bit. He's still transitioning. He's got family in Statesville, and they're still moving and all that. So he's got a lot going on over the next few weeks. So continue to pray for him and his family. And I know that they will greatly appreciate that. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Father, we pause this morning and we say thank you for your goodness and your grace. And Father, we want to say thank you for the way you've worked in our lives this week in thousands of ways. And oftentimes we don't recognize it. Oftentimes we begin to think that you're far off somewhere running the universe and you have no concern for us. Father, forgive us when we fail to see your work. Father, forgive us. Forgive us when we get irritated at you because you're not working on our timeline or in a way we think you should. Forgive us, Father, for the times that we 
whine and complain during trials that you've brought into our lives specifically to show us your grace and to help us grow deep roots in you. Father, forgive us when we fail to see that what you're doing is good. And Father, forgive us for being so busy in our lives that, that we don't see your hand at work. Father, what you're gonna teach us this morning is, is what you were teaching, trying to teach the Southern Kingdom. And Father, you're gonna use the image of a potter working with clay. Father, I pray that that image would come alive in us this morning. And Father, that we could see what you're up to, to see it from your perspective. But Father, not only to see it, but that we would yield to it. Father, we love you. And Father, I firmly believe that if we could see the work that you're doing in our life and all around us, that it would change our perspective on Monday morning. It would change our view of the world. And Father, more than anything else, we would want to join you in that work. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we are deeply grateful for the grace and mercy you've poured out into our lives day after day after day. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What makes a masterpiece a masterpiece? If I were to ask you what is probably one of the most, I don't know, important works of art or one of the most well-known, you would probably talk about or mention the Mona Lisa, painted by Leonardo da Vinci in 1507. And pretty much every art person that's well-known in art and um, would agree that the Mona Lisa is certainly a masterpiece. But when you look at it, and let me just say this, I, I have a deeper appreciation for art now than I did when I was younger. I think maybe it's because of some things my wife's teaching our kids uh, through school, and um, I get to hear what they're learning about, and they kind of pull me in, and I learn about art. I think another opportunity was when I went to D.C. a few years ago, and we got to go in the art museums. I think I've developed a little bit deeper appreciation than I had when I was younger. But quite frankly, when you look at the Mona Lisa, you wouldn't really think that it's all that great of a masterpiece if you didn't know some of the history and what was going on in that artwork. I mean, it's just basically a, a woman, not a very attractive woman, sitting with her hands crossed, kind of looking at the artist, and in the background there's some woods and a stream. So if you look at it, you, you couldn't possibly, just at first glance, think that 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 piece of artwork is valued at $900 million. Yes, folks, that's a nine and two zeros after it, just, just not too far off from a billion dollars. If you look at that artwork, if you look at it, you just first glance, you're thinking, that, there's no way that could be worth $900 million. So what makes a masterpiece a masterpiece? So for example, if, if you go to the Myrtle Beach in the summer and you go to one of the big outlets or you go down on the beach, there'll be someone there who will paint your caricature for what, like 20 bucks? Now you might think that's a masterpiece and that's fine. But what makes that maybe not as much as a masterpiece as the Mona Lisa? And quite frankly, they're two self-portraits or two portraits of a, of a person. Well, it comes down to the artist. It comes down to the work that he did in that particular piece. It comes down to the technique. And it comes down to, was this particular artist, did he, did he break some barriers? Did he do some things differently 
Of course, this painting was done in the Renaissance. And there, was, there were certain styles and certain techniques that were used in the Renaissance. And, and when da Vinci painted this painting, he, he kind of dropped some of the usual ways of, of painting. For example, it was typically given that you drew, you painted with outlines and you kind of filled in with the rest of the artwork. But with da Vinci, this particular piece, he didn't use any outlines. Another thing that he did is he, he, he painted it in layers. And that's what gives it that depth to the piece. So the things that da Vinci did in this particular painting is what sets it apart from other paintings. Some of the other techniques that he uses, he hid some things in the, in the painting. One thing, and, and by the way, as I talk about this, don't pull out your phone and go to Google, because I know you're gonna wanna do that. Wait till later. But if you look at the Mona Lisa, if you look at the eyes of the woman, in your peripheral vision, it looks like she's smiling. So if you focus on her eyes, in the periphery, it looks like she's smiling back at you. But this is interesting. When you take your eyes off of her eyes and you look at her smile or you look at her, her mouth, the smile goes away. It's almost like she's kind of maybe smirking just a little bit, but not really a smile at all. And Da Vinci did this intentionally, and it's how he painted the face and the techniques that he used. So what makes a masterpiece a masterpiece? Well, the work of the artist, the style that he brought to the piece. Did you know that God considers you a masterpiece? When we started out singing this morning, we talked about God forming us in the womb, right? Not just because you're unique, not just because there's no other person on the planet like you. Even if you have a twin, there's no one else on the planet like you. No one else has a fingerprint like you. No one else is wired quite like you. No one looks like you, thinks like you. You were a one-off masterpiece at conception. But that's not exactly what Paul's talking about over in Ephesians 2. Turn over to Ephesians 2. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament. It's probably in my top five at least because I love what Paul teaches here. And I want to use this kind of, as a, kind of as a jumping off place into this imagery of the potter and the clay. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. If you look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, you usually get the focus. Maybe you've memorized these verses. And these verses are, are vitally important. But oftentimes we, we focus on verses 8 and 9 at the expense of verse 10. And I think verse 10 is kind of the pinnacle of what Paul is teaching in this particular paragraph. So pick it up in verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul, and the reason these verses get so much attention is because it spells out clearly that your salvation, your redemption, your reconciliation with God was not something that you pulled off. It is not something that you got good enough one day where God says, okay, you're in. Because if, if it was about you and about you being good enough, then one day in the future, maybe up in heaven, you could boast to your friends in heaven, wow, look how good I was. Look what all I did. But Paul says, no, there was no work that could bring you out of spiritual death into spiritual life. But verse, not, verse 10, look at this. He says, for we are his workmanship. Now, if you have a paraphrase translation, like a, like a New Living Translation, NLT, right there in that word workmanship, you have the word masterpiece. If you look at the Greek behind that particular word, you'll find out that it, it, it kind of insinuates a uniqueness, a one of a kind. Yes, something 
beautiful, something unlike anything else, that God's workmanship in you, God's masterpiece that he's building in you, is unlike anything else he's doing anywhere else. Get this. Created in Christ Jesus. So we were born from our mother and father. Unique, beautiful, but there was something missing. And that something missing was spiritual life. So in Christ, we find new birth, we find new life, and it's in that new life that God begins to do something amazing and beautiful. Get this, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand. Prepared beforehand. God has a path for every person who's put their faith in Jesus to walk out. And it's in that path that God is doing some of his greatest work on you, his masterpiece. That God has recreated you in Christ as a new creation for good works, as a testimony of his power, and that you're, you're his masterpiece. Now go back to Jeremiah. Now you may be saying at this point, well, I don't feel a whole lot like a masterpiece, and I don't feel a whole lot like what's going on in my life right now could possibly ever be considered to be good. Some of you are walking through some very difficult, well, valleys right now. The southern kingdom, the nation of Israel, what's left of it as a southern kingdom, these were God's people that he's called out to himself. These are the descendants of Abraham. So God, in his sovereignty and in his grace, he steps into time and space and he says to Abraham, Abraham, your descendants, and you're going to have many of them, it's going to be a blessing to the rest of the world. You're going to have a land, and I'm going to make this promise to you, and I'm going to keep it. We know that to be the, the covenant with Abraham. So God chooses the nation to be his masterpiece, to look different than the rest of the nations around them, that he would set them apart, and that he would work in their lives, and that he would bless them, that he would empower them, and that they would be a testimony of the artist behind that great masterpiece, God himself. But as we get to Jeremiah, as we've already looked, we know that the city, the Judah, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom is filled with evil, filled with darkness. Last week we saw where Jeremiah describes the southern kingdom as hearts filled desperately with wickedness, that, they, that their hearts were desperately sick, and who can know the depths of it? And God was working even in the midst of the trouble that they're going through. So today, what I want us to notice is, and what I, saw, what I want us to lean into this morning is that, that God's at work in your life, and whether it be hardship, whether it be correction, or whether it be blessing, God is working in you, his masterpiece. And no matter where you feel like it, no matter where you feel like your marriage is a masterpiece, where you feel like you're a masterpiece or not, God's work is evident in your life through the hardship, through the blessing. And much like the southern kingdom, sometimes we resist that work. Sometimes we push back on it. Sometimes we simply don't want God to work that way in our life. We want it a different way. So let's take a look at verse 1, and let's see what God calls Jeremiah to do. And the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. Historians tell us that the pottery makers in Jerusalem were located in one particular place. 
So God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, for what I'm about to teach you, to teach to the people, I'm going to have to give you an illustration to get you to maybe wrap your arms around it so our people can understand. So God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. Well, where was the potter's house? Well, if you're standing on the Temple Mount, the potter's house would have been straight to the south outside the walls of the city. And the potter's house was located in the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom is very well known all through Scripture. Let me give you some background. The Valley of Hinnom was this very deep valley at the southern end of the city outside the walls. As a matter of fact, on the walls looking off into the Valley of Hinnom, it was a very, very deep valley. Some historians say that when David was writing Psalm 23 and he talked about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he was talking about the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom has smoke rising out of it almost all the time. The reason was is because it was considered, it was a dump. It was where all the garbage and trash and stuff was dumped in the Valley of Hinnom outside the walls. Also in this valley, this deep valley, it was a place where if you walked through, there would be garbage, broken pottery. If you walked far enough, you'd find, well, bodies were thrown there. In the New Testament, when Jesus was talking about hell, when he was talking about eternal torment, he used Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, to illustrate just how awful that place would be. So God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. So Jeremiah gets up and he goes, verse 3. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands. And he reworked it into another vessel as, he seemed, as it seemed good to the potter. So when Jeremiah goes down to the valley of Hinnom, he sees a potter. And this was a good location for a potter because you had two things that you must have to make pottery. You must have good clay, and you must have a water source. So in the Valley of Hinnom, this is where water and clay can be found. So Jeremiah goes down there and he walks up. And I would, I'm imagining in my mind's eye an older gentleman who's been doing this for a very long time. And he's sitting and with his foot he is spinning a large round stone. And that stone has a shaft that's connected to it. And on top of that is another round stone. And the framework holds it where that stone can spin. And as he would spin the stone and get the inertia going of that larger stone, that top stone would spin at the speed he desired. And then he would take some of that clay mixed with water, just the right clay, just the right amount of water, and he would place it in the center of that top stone. And as he would spin it, he would take his hands and he would form that clay into a pot, a tall vessel, whatever he desired. Now, if you were to look at the hands of someone who's been doing pottery for a long time, you're gonna notice something, their forearms. They're very muscular. You'll see the veins very defined. My, my sister's an artist and, and she, I've, so I've watched her do pottery. And she can, she can oil paint, she can, she can do just about any kind of medium and do it well. But there was some years ago I went to a, there was a fair there and there was a guy who'd been doing pottery and been doing it for years and his, his forearms were just ripped because when you're doing pottery, you have to have just the right amount of pressure. And the bigger the pot requires more strength and more pressure to form that clump of clay into something useful. So here's Jeremiah. He's watching the potter. And as the potter is working with a clump of clay on the stone, he noticed that the, the potter is having trouble. He notices that the, the clay is not yielding to the work of the potter. Now, it could be that the clay was too dry. It could be that it was too wet. It could be that the clay maybe had the wrong mixture. 
And I've watched this where if the clay's too dry, it crumbles and just falls apart. If it's the wrong kind of clay or it's not mixed well, one whole side of the clay will just fall off. So Jeremiah watches the potter. He sees that the potter's having trouble. And he notices that at some point the potter just stops, kind of reforms the clay and starts back over again. Maybe he adds some water. Maybe he adds some more clay to it. But the clay remains on the wheel. That's the imagery that God wanted to teach something to Israel and to this southern kingdom. Pick it up in verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. So much like when we read the parables in the New Testament, where Jesus takes a, a, a usual everyday event, such as sowing seed, and he takes that imagery and he casts alongside it some kind of spiritual truth. God does the exact same thing with Jeremiah. He says, take a look at the potter. Take a look at the clay. Now there's something I want to teach you and I want to teach the people of the southern kingdom. He says, can I not do just as this potter has done? So what God says to Jeremiah is, the potter is not just some guy in the valley of Hinnom. I'm the potter. And that clay that's on the wheel, that's not just a lump of mud. That represents my people. And Jeremiah, what I need you to see is that my hands are all meshed, mashed into my people. He says to Jeremiah, he says, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the day in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So God has got his hands pressed into his people. God has his hands pressed in to you if you're one of his children. God's hands are pressing into your life. Sometimes it looks as though it's coming through blessing. God gives you the job that you prayed about or, or God healed you of the sickness that you had or God, God provided for you when you didn't have any provision. Sometimes it looks as though God is blessing and that, that, that in those moments of blessing, God is obviously at work in our life. I mean, oftentimes when we talk about God working in our life, it often is connected to when God is blessing us. But what about when God is correcting us? Does that mean that, that God has just kind of given up? I don't know about you, but down through my life when trials have happened, things maybe that, choices that I've made that brought circumstances are just something I could have never prepared for. Oftentimes when those things come, we often think of God as being distant and far away, don't we? We have to think of God as being like, give up on us, walked away. That God's hands is not in our life, that maybe we've done something wrong and alienated him and, and he's angry with us and he's walked away. But what God is saying here and what it, the imagery he's given us through the potter and the clay is that even in the midst of correction, God is at work in our life. That God is doing something beautiful. That God is bringing about his masterpiece. Notice what he says here, verse 7. He says that if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck it up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will build it and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Here's what God's saying. Now keep in mind the imagery of the potter and the clay. God is saying that I am wanting the southern kingdom to come back to me and repent. Remember, they ran towards idols. Remember, 
They have completely grown cold and indifferent on God. And God in his grace and mercy is saying to the southern kingdom, I want to give you a pathway back. That pathway is repentance. And what I want you to do is to get right with me. I want your heart to be right with me. And I want us to walk out our lives together as I make you into a masterpiece that I intended all those years ago by calling Abraham. God is saying that if they will turn back, that he will relent. If the clay will yield to the potter's hands, he will turn the disaster away. What disaster is he talking about? He's talking about the Babylonian army. At the very moment Jeremiah is hearing this, the, the Babylonian army has grown to such power and such strength, they're steamrolling every city they walk into. God could easily say, okay, my people have repented. He could easily say to Nebuchadnezzar and those leaders, turn away from my people. God could have easily protected the southern kingdom. The Bible says that God takes the hearts of kings and turns them like the rivers of water. God would have easily turned the Babylonians away if they would have yielded to the work he was doing in their life. Remember, God has been patient for literally hundreds of years. God has been patient with these people in their idolatry, their disobedience, their ignorance of God's word. They're, they're going through the rituals in the temple while yet on the high hills and mountains all through the city. What do we have? We have altars to Baal and Ashtoreth. So God says, as a work of his mercy and grace to the southern kingdom, return to me and I'll turn this disaster away. But if at any time you continue to disobey, if you continue to walk away, if you continue to not yield to my work in your life, if you continue to ignore my commandments that set boundaries for how you're to live, if you ignore that, then I'm going to bring upon you a disaster unlike anything you've ever experienced. I would argue that that even in God's correction, even when God allows the Babylon, a Gentile pagan army to destroy the temple, to burn it to the ground, to carry off his people into a foreign land 900 miles away where they don't speak the language, they don't eat the food, everything is different, they don't have a temple, and the, and the Babylonians are worshiping all kinds of gods, including Nebuchadnezzar himself. Their heads are shaved, that even God allowing that, that destruction to come, is a work of God's grace, a work of God's mercy, a work of God in their lives. God says to the people, change your ways and I'll change my plans. Keep walking the path of your own and I'm going to bring destruction upon you. And it's in these moments, even, even with the nation of Israel, it's in these moments when God begins to bring the pressure and the pain. It's in those moments we begin to think that God has walked away. But folks, the exact opposite is true. Just like with that potter, when he's putting a lot of pressure on that mud, a lot of pressure on that clump of clay, guess what happens? Something beautiful begins to emerge out of it. If the people respond by listening, if they repent, then God's going to restore them back, forgive them, and they're going to move on. But you know what's going to happen. They're not going to repent. God's told Jeremiah they're not going to repent. 
Babylonian, Babylon's going to destroy the city. They're going to be carried off into 70 years. 70 years of captivity. 70 years in a foreign land. 70 years where they long, constantly, even the very first year, they're longing to go back. And God says, you're not going back. It's going to be 70 years. But listen, folks. God could have easily said to this nation, I'm done with you. God, God could have easily said, I'm done with this piece of clay and cast it aside. God could have said in his sovereignty, sure, fine, have it your way. You want to be like the pagan nations? Go for it. But God in his infinite grace and God in his infinite mercy speaks to Jeremiah and says to Jeremiah, go tell the people yet one more time that it'll come back to me. I will relent. There's some lessons that we need to learn from the potter. I think there's some things that God's trying to say to us as him being the potter and us being the clay that I think we've really got to get our arms around this morning. Oftentimes when we think about growing up, and you've heard me say this multiple times over the last several months, that we've got to be growing up in Christ. Our growth begins at the new birth. And we begin to experience that changed life that Jesus brought at that single moment in time where we are justified by faith, which means we are declared holy. God's wrath turns away from us. But that begins a journey of walking with Jesus where the goal is to grow up like Jesus, to be like Jesus, to think like him, talk like him, love like him, forgive like him. We often use the term sanctification as that maturing in Christ. But let me ask you a question. Is that, is that spiritual growth, is it something that's solely up to you or solely up to God? Oftentimes, we, we tend towards two extremes here in the idea of growing in Christ. On the one extreme is this idea, this mindset. Well, I've got my ticket to heaven. If I die today, I know I'm going to heaven. So between now and then, I'm going to live my life for me. Now, we don't say that, but we're certainly living that way, right? We, we live out this idea of exactly what the southern kingdom was doing. We, we, we check the boxes with God by showing up. But in our heart, in the way we live Monday through Saturday or between Christmas and Easter or between Easter and Christmas, it's pretty much to our own self. So the idea is, is I've got my ticket to heaven, so I really don't need to do anything else. I'll pray on Sunday. I'll worship on Sunday. I'll think about Christ on Sunday. But the rest of the time, the rest of the week, the rest of my life, it's mine. Now again, we don't say that. But the way we live certainly resembles that. I call this the, the couch potato approach. It's all up to God. God's going to take me to heaven. I, God's not really expecting anything of me. And then when I get to heaven, when I stand before him, he's just going to check all the boxes and say, oh, okay, everything's great, fine, you're good. That's one extreme. That it's all up to God. It's all up to him. Well, the other extreme is what I call the Rambo approach. The Rambo approach is where I take control. The Rambo approach is where I've got to do it all. The Rambo approach is where I've got to get better. I've got to do more. I've got to, I've got to show how much I know about the Bible. I've got to memorize more verses. I've got to be at church all the time and any time in between. The idea that I'm going to do it all, I'm going to do it on my own, that it's solely up to me. I would offer to you that both of these extremes are equally wrong. Because I think what the potter and the clay teaches us is that God is at work in our life, but we must yield to that work. So let's look at some, just some things that we can apply right out of this text to consider what we can learn from the potter and the clay. First of all, I want you to notice something. 
The clay, the work, and the results. The clay, the work, and the results belong to God. Whether we're looking at Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, or whether we're looking here at the potter and the clay, the reality is, is what's happening in the southern kingdom is solely dependent upon a sovereign God and his grace and mercy at work in a southern kingdom that quite frankly has turned their back on him. If it were not for God's grace, if it were not for God's mercy, if God's mercy and grace had a limit, we would all have exceeded that limit long ago. The fact that God is still even dealing with this southern kingdom is amazing. When you read the minor and major prophets, there's two things you come away with when you read these prophets. Number one, how in the world did these people not get it? How in the world did they not get it? In spite of the miracles that God did, in spite of the, the prophets who came and spoke, they still continued on the trend that they were on. How in the world did they not turn back to God? And secondly, how in the world could God be that loving and that gracious? Because I guarantee you, if someone had treated you a third the way these people had treated God, you would have walked away a long time ago. Think about it when the confines of marriage. The illustration of marriage is strong throughout the book of Jeremiah. God being the husband, Israel being the bride. And that that bride has went looking for other lovers over and over and over and over again. And God keeps coming to the table with prophets saying, come home, come home, come home. There's nothing for you down there. There's nothing for you with that other, other lover. There's nothing there. Come home, come home. If you don't come home, I'm going to bring destruction into your life. Come home. God does this for hundreds and hundreds of years. And you read this and you have to think, God, why in the world? Would you keep extending grace? But let me tell you, folks, let me just ask us a question. Let's bring it a little closer to home. Over and over and over again, God has pleaded with you to work with him, to yield to him, to, to seek repentance, and yet we don't. Why is that? And yet God extends grace and mercy. Why does he do that? Because he's a good father. And that God continues to work in the clay, the results, the work, the masterpiece, all belong to a holy God. It all points to him. Just as much as when we look at the Mona Lisa and we see the intricacies of that artwork, you know what it does? It points right back to Leonardo da Vinci. All great pieces of artwork point back to the one who created it. You point back to your creator. You point back to the one who's making you into a masterpiece. You the way you live, the way you speak, the way you forgive, the way you love, all speaks, as a believer in Christ, speaks to the God that you believe in. The southern kingdom and us at times, well, our lives speak poorly of our creator at times. All of this belongs to him, his sovereignty, his grace, his mercy, his love, it all points back to him. Secondly, blessing and correction Comfort and pain are all God's work in you. So just like with that potter, when he is really pressing, really putting pressure on the clay, it's only then that we can begin to see something emerge. If you just throw some clay on a wheel and start spinning it, and you just put a light touch on it, it's, it's not gonna, this is going to be a round clump of clay. You see, we, we can't grow up in Christ and boy, I hate this just as much as you do, but here's the reality. We can't grow up in Christ without pressure. 
You see, we think if we just had more money, if we just had more of this or that, if we just had more resources, if we just, if we just had some, some time where there was no trials and troubles, then that's when we could really grow up in Christ. And we didn't have all the stuff to deal with, right? And with that mindset, what we're seeing and what we think is, is that the troubles, the problems, the health problems, the marriage problems, the kid problems, the grandkid problems, the financial problems. We look at all those problems and we separate that from the work of God in our life because we only think that it's only through blessing that God works. That's not the case. It's through pressure. I think if we're honest with ourselves and we've been following Jesus for a while, if you look back, if you look back across your life, y'all been through some very, very deep valleys. I don't know if you know it or not, but there's a lot of hurt in this room. This is a church of broken people who God's healing. Thank God for that. And, and, I, and I, I'm, I am privileged in that I know a lot of your stories when the rest of you don't because we've talked. And when I look across this room, I see a lot of people who've been hurt desperately bad. Now, let me ask you a question. At that deepest valley, that deepest moment, that deepest pain that you were in, whatever the source was, can we all just agree that it was in those places that we felt God's touch more than we've ever felt at any other time in our life? I see heads shaking everywhere. Or maybe this, maybe in that place where you made the wrong call, you made the wrong choice. You knew it was wrong. You knew there was gonna be circumstances. You, you knew that this was outside of God's command and his will for your life, but yet you did it anyway. And it blew up. I mean, it blew up. But you yielded to God. You repented. You, you came back to him and you said, I am sorry. I agree with you that this is sin. And, and God healed you of that, forgave you of that. And now when you look back on it, you go, I would never, I would never want to do that again. I would never want to go down that path. But I'll tell you what, I'm thankful for what God did through that mess. My marriage is stronger. My faith is stronger. My kids are stronger. My house, I got, I got fired. I never thought I would get fired. But God blessed me with another job far better than what I had before. I would have never chose to walk through that valley. But the valley that I walked through, I found God in the depths of that place. I found his love in the depth of that valley. I found his care unlike anything I've ever felt. And his hands were deep into the clay of my life. You see, it's not... The absence of trouble and the presence of blessing that indicates that God is working. See, it's the presence of both. And even so much more in the trouble. You see, this southern kingdom, guess what's going to happen? They're going to go off into captivity. We know that. They're going to live in a foreign land for 70 years. They hate it. As a matter of fact, we have, we have other writers writing about their first year, their first initial time. And, and back. You know what they're doing? They're crying and begging for God to take them home. You know what God says? No. 70 years is 70 years. God said it's going to be 70 years, and did you know it's 70 years? You can look at the calendar, you can look at the dates, it's all mapped out. It's 70-year mark, God begins to allow the people to go back home. But get this. The southern kingdom that went into captivity is not the same kingdom that came out of captivity. They are different. They are vastly changed. God worked something out of them in the sands of Babylon that I don't think, according to how they responded to God, would have never got worked out with a temple, walls, gold, wealth, armies, and all the kings that you could have. They could not have gotten to the place that God tugged them after they came out 
of Babylonian captivity, and so it is with us. The trial, the difficulty, the hardship, whether something we've done or something that's came into our life that we didn't expect, that is just as much as God working in your life as the bank account full of money. And I would say to you also that when the bank account's full and everything is good, you don't turn your heart towards God. What do you do? You turn it towards yourself, don't you? I do. So it's not when everything's perfect that we really run towards God. It's when we desperately need him that we run towards him. And guess what God will do with a trial? He'll let that come into your life simply because you'll turn and run to him, hopefully. Listen to what James says. The writer of the book of James, he says this. James 1, 2 through 4, you don't have to turn over there. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, James was not insane. James is not writing this to say, hey, y'all do this. No, James is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what James says? James says, see the trial, see the difficulty as God taking his hands and forming the clay into something beautiful. And James says to count that joy. How can we count it joy? Because we know what comes out of that pressure, out of that difficulty, is far better than what went into it. Closer to God, closer to your spouse, better view on life and the world. It's almost as though James is saying, hey, there's a masterpiece in work here. And that that masterpiece may become complete and perfect, lacking nothing. Then, then yield to the pressure. Yield to what God is doing. See him at work in the middle of your trouble, in the middle of your trial. That's what the southern kingdom failed to see. And they failed to repent. Third, first of all, the clay, the work, and the art. The clay, the work, the results belong to God. Blessing and correction are all God's work in you. Third, third, when you fail, God doesn't give up on you. I think if there's any more beautiful image in the potter and the clay is when Jeremiah's down there in the valley of Hinnom and he sees there on that wheel spinning this clay and that clay's just not yielding. What would be expected of the potter is to simply take the clump of mud or dirt or whatever and just throw it aside. Start over. When you read the Old Testament, there are plenty of times that you would sit back in your chair after reading and go, God... I think it's time to start over. But when you fail, as a follower of Jesus, God doesn't give up on you. It's, a, it's as though God sees something in you that you don't see yourself. It's as though God sees a masterpiece here. When we look at the Mona Lisa, it's a woman sitting with her arms crossed with a smirk on her face. But when you, when you look at it and how the artist intended it, oh, then it begins to come alive. God sees in us something we don't see in ourselves. Did you know that, that God's not in love with some future version of you? He's in love with you now. 
God's not in love with what you might come become one day. He's not in love with the finished product. He's in love with you now, right now, with all kinds of grace and all kinds of mercy and all kinds of work in your life. And yes, sometimes that hurts, but God is not going to give up on you. Now, he'll bring correction. He'll bring pressure. He's going to form that into a masterpiece because he has an ultimate goal. That goal is to bring glory to himself through your life. But he loves you right now. He loves you when you're a big old clump. <laughs> you look at it and you can't tell much at all. Much like I was when I first came to faith in Christ. Just, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew all the church language. I knew, I knew all the stuff. I, I didn't know what it meant. Just a clump. Still pretty much a clump. But God is, has been forming and working. He's, he's brought things into my life and trials. He's called me to something, quite frankly, that I could never do on my own. He dropped me in the deep end of the pool and said, you're going to preach the word. I don't know how to do that. Well, that's okay. You're going to have to trust me with that. When you fail, he doesn't give up. He didn't give up on these people 70 years of captivity. He's not going to give up on you. Here's the thing. Oftentimes when we're following Jesus and we fail, we get so embarrassed by the failure. We get so, we, we beat ourselves down so much that we can't possibly imagine that God would ever forgive us. So you know what we do? We don't even ask. We, we become so self-detrimental. We, we beat ourselves up that, that, that we can't even come to God and God already knows what it is. And God, because he loves you, not some future version of yourself, but love you right now, he's longing and calling for you to come to him. Set it up in his lap. Tell him what went wrong. God will forgive you of it. Set you free from it. Clean you up and go right back to the work that he's doing, forming you into a beautiful masterpiece. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful thought? You haven't gone too far, Christian. Lost person, you haven't either. You haven't either. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Wherever you've gone, you haven't gone too far. He wants to begin a good work in you. Finally, uh, before I get to this last one, let me, let me show you this verse. I'm about to skip this. I don't want to skip it. Look at verse 12. This is how people are going to respond to this message of the potter and the clay. Look at how they respond. But they say, that is vain or that is a waste of time. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Wow, yeah, I guess it's going to take 70 years. Listen to me. You have a choice to make. Lost person, you have a choice to make. And it really comes down to this. Either believing Jesus for who he is and surrendering your life and having him change your life from the inside out. Or you can continue to walk the path you're on, but make no mistake about it, that path of stubbornness, that path of doing your own thing, yeah, you're, you're gonna end up in a really horrible, awful place one day. And that's the choice you're making. Followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, listen. You can either respond to God's hard work in your life, you can either yield to that work, or, or God's going to bring even more pressure. He's going to put his fingers deeper into your life. He's going to put some more pressure on you because trust me when I tell you, God is a good father, but he's also a father that brings correction. 
So you can take that as far as you want to go, but I'm going to tell you who's going to come out on the winning side of that. It's going to be your father. He's going to bring you to the end of yourself. He's going to bring you to your knees. Wouldn't it be better that we respond now? Wouldn't it be better that we walk towards God now? He'll take it as far as you want to go. He'll break you down as far as you want to be broke down. But your loving father is saying to you over and over and over again, your failure hasn't taken you too far. I've not thrown you aside. One last thing here, and I've got to hit this before we go on. Got to hit this. There are churches, ministries in our community and all across the Bible Belt and beyond who teach a theology that says this, that you can be saved today, lost tomorrow. You can, you can make a profession of faith to Jesus and, 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 and truly put faith in Jesus today and then tomorrow make one mistake and God will cast you to the side and, and you're lost. First of all, the Bible doesn't teach that. Second of all, it's heresy. Third, if you're in that place, if you're in that place of believing that, I would love to spend a half day talking with you about what God's Word says about what it means to be born again because see, your salvation wasn't dependent upon you and keeping your salvation is not dependent upon you. That's good news, folks. It's good news. Come on now, wake up with me. Stay with me here. Listen, if it was up to me, I'd have lost it years ago. I'm not holding on to God. God's holding on to me. If you're stuck in that place where you think the imagery of God is taking you and throwing you off the wheel and going with someone else, that's a lie from Satan. Don't believe that. It's not what the Scripture teaches. It's not what myriads of people in this room and across this county have experienced in the goodness and grace of God. Listen, folks. For those who've been set free, you are free indeed. Finally. And yes, finally. God will finish his masterpiece. Philippians 1.6 says this that he who begun a good work in you, he who begun a good work in you, will bring it to completion. Boy, it doesn't feel like that today, does it? There are many days it doesn't feel like that God's working at all. But God says, what I've begun in you, at the moment I called you out of darkness and the light, that, that new birth, that new birth right there, that moment that I began this work, that work is gonna bring completion. I'm going to complete it. There's going to be a masterpiece. And that masterpiece is going to testify to the great artist behind that work, and it's me. It's going to bring glory to me. I'm going to complete it. Whatever failure you're in today is not the end of you. Uh, oh, by the way, whatever mountaintop you're on, that's not the end word either. You're not going to stay there. You know how mountaintops work. Mountaintops are really narrow. Valleys are wide and long. I hate to be honest with you, but there's a reason why we think of mountaintops as a place of blessing. The problem is, is they're very short. It's the valleys in between that really make us wonder if we're alone or not. But in that deepest, darkest valley, the Valley of Hinnom, It's there God's doing some of his greatest work in your life. The divorce that you went through. The loss of a parent or a child or a grandchild. The horrible surgeries that you've had to endure. The medical intervention that you never thought you'd ever have to face. It's those places where God is pressing into you. And my goodness, what a beautiful masterpiece he's making. 
the people that I've met down through the years and doing what God's called me to do. Some of the most beautiful people that I've met are the people who have endured tremendous hardship but still have joy and peace in their life. And here's the reality. You look at them. If you look at them, and I'm looking at many here this morning, you look at them from the outside, you're like, eh, kind of like the Mona Lisa, you know? Just another woman, just another guy. But when we begin to hear the work of the master in their life, we begin to see the masterpieces for what they are. A work of God's grace, a work of God's mercy. And in that, folks, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a masterpiece of his, you're on the wheel. God's putting his hands all in your life. Wouldn't it be wise to yield to that work today? Father, you are good and holy and righteous and my goodness, Father, we, we can never get over the goodness of your grace and your mercy and your love. I pray that we never do. For the one caught between the idea of gaining salvation and losing it, Father, I pray that they would hear me clear this morning. You are not a potter that throws the clay away. That's not how you operate. Your patience and your love and your grace are eternal and everlasting. So, Father, I pray that they would come to this place of understanding, plant their feet, that you plant their feet upon a rock, that they know where they stand with you. For others, Father, in the place today that are your people, Father, this world and its troubles and its pains and its difficulties, we find ourselves in a valley and we look around and we begin to believe the lie that you've tossed us aside. That's exactly what our enemy wants us to think. But Father, it's in those moments you're doing some of your greatest work. So Father, I pray today for every Christ follower in the room that we would simply yield to the calling and the work that, you've, that you're doing in our life, that we would recognize it, that we would see it, that we would rejoice in it, and that we would simply yield to it. We need help to do that, Father. Help us. Help us in this time of trouble. Help us in this time of hardship. Help us to yield to that great work that you're doing in our lives. Father, may our lives and the words of our mouth, meditations of our heart, the way we think, the way we live, may we represent the master artist well as we live our life in a broken world. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.